Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. Alrighty, let's uh, turn to the book of James, chapter 1. If you're new, you hear a little bit of excitement about that because we've been in the book of Luke for two years. (laughs) I didn't mean it quite like that, but we go verse by verse here at Calvary Chapel, so um, we don't necessarily go through the New Testament in order, though we have been through the book of Acts already, which is Luke volume two, really, to be technically uh, right about it. So we're going to go to James. And as you're doing that, you can hold your finger there because I will eventually get there. We'll ask the Lord for some grace. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your holy word, your scripture tells us it's God-breathed from heaven and it's supernatural in its origin, that it is not the word of men, that men were the human instruments, but you, the author of all scripture, for it is God-breathed, and it's for our good to show us how we could live right with God and be blessed. So take these concepts and ideas that come from heaven and make them at home in our hearts so that we can be blessed. Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure it would be very difficult growing up uh, with a gifted sibling who's always aspiring to greatness to have to live in the shadow of a brother or a sister who becomes a celebrity. His name, his given name was William, but he didn't go by that name. He was raised in the South in a fairly typical Southern family, it's fairly typical for a while, with a brother. Now, William's brother graduated from Uh, the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, He worked as an engineer on nuclear-powered subs. When Dad died, it was William's brother who took over the family business and ran it very well. Um, The brother then becomes a state senator, and lo and behold, the brother becomes governor. And even though this aspiring sibling Uh, didn't flaunt his success in his family or with his brother. Uh, There was still some mocking and resentment and and an estrangement between the two. Well, things got unbearable when this brother became president of the United States. While James, also known as Jimmy Carter, became leader of the free world in 1977, William or better known as Billy, became infamous for drinking beer and belching in public. 
he also had a brand of beer named after him. And when the microphone went anywhere near Billy, he used it to say disparaging and silly things to undermine his brother's success. The two brothers' lives, their character qualities, and clearly their destinies couldn't have been more delineated throughout the years. Now, welcome to the book of James, where you're going to meet a man who knew something of that kind of struggle, growing up with a sibling who perfectly outshined everybody around. James is the blood brother two years younger than Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. Now, we think that Billy had it bad. (laughs) We're going to talk about this now. As most of you know, and as I have mentioned, we're beginning a new study here in the book of James. Sometimes it's called the Epistle of James, which is just an old Middle English word for letter or message, epistle. So the Epistle of James Now, as Warren Wiersbe likes to say, when you begin a new study of a book of the Bible, it's kind of like taking a trip, preparing to go on a trip. You'd like to know where you're going and what you can expect. So usually at about this point, I would turn to the text for our consideration, but it will be extremely helpful to understand the contents of the letter of James if we understand three quick things. Then we'll get into the text. Who's writing the letter? Who is he writing to? And why? So really, you have to understand the content of the letter in terms of who God is using to write the letter. And so let's talk about the author, first of all. When it comes to the author of a book of the Bible, one of the 66, you really have two considerations the human hand that held the pen, and the Spirit of God who guided it. 66 books, 40 different authors, wrote, inspired by God, over a period of 1,800 years. Thus, you have the Biblos, the book in Greek, the Bible. The reason there are no contradictions in 66 books written by 40 different men over a period of two millennia is because there is indeed one author. Forty pens and pads, but it's as if God dictated to a secretary who is taking down his word, God-inspired word. The Bible says of itself, you know, the entire Bible, I'm quoting a paraphrase, the entire Bible is God-breathed and is given to us for the purpose of teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in what is good and how we are to be right with God so that believers are well prepared to serve God. So that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the scriptures come from God, but he used human agency. Now, as far as the pen holder, James, and there are four New Testament Jameses to choose from. Technically, as an English teacher, I can tell you, you don't say Jameses. You just say, James, all right? So I throw that in for free, because I know some of your junior high English teachers have traumatized you, and you no longer know where to put your apostrophes, because it's all one blur. But anyway, uh, there were four James, and 
the half-brother of Jesus is the most likely candidate. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Jesus had siblings, brothers and sisters. He was a human being born of a virgin womb, but he was fully God as well. He had no earthly father, but he was related to us in that he was a human being. Joseph and Mary did not consummate their marriage until, Matthew chapter 1, until Jesus was born. After they consummated the marriage, then brothers and sisters were born. They would technically be half-brothers to and sisters of the Lord. Matthew 13 and Mark 6 give the lists of their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Two of those names, James and Jude, would go on to believe in the Lord and then be be used to write epistles. Now, um, since James is always listed at the top of the list when, when the lists are given, he is the oldest. So if Jesus is born... Uh, he, James is not much younger. He is one or two years. So if, James is, if Jesus is five, James is three. If, and you could do the math. If when Jesus is 13, James, his next sibling in line, this James who wrote this epistle, is 11. And so that, to me, is just fascinating. It's a phenomenal privilege, but it did not go well. It did not go well at all. The siblings did not believe in him. They mocked him. They were not believers. And you and I are like, how can you grow up with the... Folks, second person of the Godhead was in that body. How can you grow up and live with that and not believe? Well, if you think about how human sinful siblings can be, Your resentment, your jealousy, and all those other emotions can obscure your reason. And of course, you you may see things that you totally uh, admire and put your your faith and trust in, but because of your emotions, because you're tweaked, I mean, just think about it. It's hard enough when mom and dad say, you know, why can't you be more like your brother? You know? (laughs) It's hard enough to hear that about Jesus. You know, why can't you be more like Jesus? Well, he's God, (laughs) you know, but they wouldn't be really doing anything out of the ordinary biblically to say that. How about just, can you imagine? I stopped to think. I mean, James grew up with Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, not in a bedroom down the hall, folks, then a family bed. This kid was close and grew up with the living God. His perfection. Now, Jesus wasn't like a 30-year-old when he was seven. He was a perfect seven-year-old without sin. And so Jesus' perfection was always casting light on their imperfection. Jesus didn't lord it around, you know, saying, well, look at me, you know, when his mother said, when, when James went to mom and said, he's not the boss of me. You know, and his mom would say, you know, actually, he is. <laughs> and he's the boss of me as well. <laughs> and he's the boss of the neighborhood, and it doesn't stop there. <laughs> I mean, how can you not build up its Jesus this and Jesus that? And how poor Mary and Joseph, 
Can you imagine how they had to not show deference to who they both know? Whoa, angels have appeared. Mary, Mary knows full well what went on with her. She's the only one who really knows. How in the world did I get pregnant? Who is this kid going to become? You see. So I just picture this in my head. I just picture one of the teenagers, you know, they're always tired of hearing about him, probably. And, you know, one of the teenagers finds a little box and he opens it up and he sees gold and frankincense and myrrh. They go, Mom, what is this about? Uh, (laughs) They're gifts for your, for for who? (laughs) For your brother. For, for, for why? Because he was born. <laughs> oh, wow. Can we? Well, well, they're his. Yeah. Well, uh, who gave them to him? Well, these kings came. <laughs> uh, well, how did the kings know that it was his birthday? Uh, there was the star in the sky over your brother's birth. You know, I, folks, there's no winning here, you know. <laughs> Relationally. And so in John 7, when Jesus is 32 and James is 30, from James' mouth and the brothers comes, hey, you want to be famous? Why don't you take your little dog and pony show to Jerusalem and show off? Maybe you can go somewhere with this little magic show of yours. And in another part of the gospel, they come and they say he's out of his mind. We need to constrain him and take him home. That's James, grown-up man who has come to say, this man is crazy. What was that? What was going on? All of that bitterness, his perfection showed his perfect compliance, revealed their rebelliousness, his perfect obedience contrasted with their disobedience, his perfect reverence was shining next to their irreverence. It was just really impossible for them to really admire and get past their own emotional hurdles. The the fault, of course, is not in Jesus, but in their sinful hearts. But all of that is going to change. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he had a private appearance to who? James. He went to his little brother. You know, he's 33. James is 31. And he showed up and said, bro... And what what a time that was. James' heart changed. He became a believer. And boy, did he become a believer. James is going to make up for lost ground, and he's going to evangelize his brothers and his sisters. For you'll read in Acts that at the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes, guess who's there? Mom and the brothers and sisters. They're all on board. Now, nothing is... There's nothing like a humiliating defeat to fuel the fires of a man given a second chance. James is thinking, man, of all the people in the world, the Messiah comes into my home and he's my brother. He's my older brother that I grew up with. And I wasted 30 years of my life. Well, now he's driven man. Now he gets it and he's going to become what, the, what Paul the apostle calls a pillar of the church. He is senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem, the very 
the very first church. Now, you all remember in Acts chapter 2, boom, the Holy Spirit falls, and there are 3,000 who are saved. They're all Jews. And then by Acts chapter 4, there are 2,000 added to that. The church is at 5,000 in Jerusalem. Who's the pastor? James. Church history says they used to have a nickname for him about his camel knees because he prayed so much on them, they were distorted. He was a real man of God. Unfortunately, the Pharisees just couldn't stand his testimony about his brother, you know, his half-brother, the Lord. And so they put him up on top of the pinnacle of the temple where Satan had a little confrontation with Jesus, his brother, and said, maybe you'll fare as well as your brother. And they pushed him off, and he fell to his death. That's not before he wrote a five-chapter letter to those who were scattered from his church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, a huge, ferocious persecution arose against the church, and those Jewish believers scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, and they were drowning. So the occasion for the letter is this. They were oppressed by rich landlords, They had a terrible time of it. They were caught in considerable social tension. Here they are, they're Jews, right? They're Jewish Christians. So they don't fit in when they go into the Roman Empire in these pagan countries, these people to whom James is going to write. They don't fit in with the pagans because they're monotheistic. They believe in one God. They've got clean and unclean rules. They're like us in this world. And they're marginalized. But worse than that, they're not at home with the pagans, and they're not at home with their Jews. They walk into the synagogue, hey, speaking Hebrew. Yeah, what's going on? Well, we're waiting for the Messiah. Oh, we got good news for you, brothers. Judaism's been completed. We got the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, get out. So now they're not at home with pagans. They can't get jobs. Generally, they're all poor. And now they start thinking to themselves, these Jews who are scattered, if you can't beat them, join them. If I live as, if I live as a pronounced Christian, it will be harder for me. So if I compromise my Christian life and become a friend to the world, it will go easier for me. And James sends them a letter. Five chapters to drowning Jewish Christians who are thinking about throwing in the towel. That's who's writing. That's who he's writing to and the reason he's writing. And it will make total sense to you. Now that you know that, do you know that James has the most teaching of Jesus than any other New Testament book? Doesn't that make sense? And mom and dad, it tells me that even though somebody is mocking and in unbelief, he's paying attention. There are at least a dozen references to the Sermon on the Mount. He's heard a lot of this. And now that the emotional barrier has been healed and taken away, all of that that he's been saving in his heart about his brother, the Lord, can come into play and he can engage it. So, you know, James is rough. 
He's a no-nonsense guy. Why? He grew up with God in the same house. (laughs) Does not that make sense to you when you read James? It's like, yeah. James is like, get out of the way. There's a problem. Let's fix it. Here's how to fix it. And he wants those beloved Jewish Christians from his congregation to fare well and to become mature and to put their faith into practice. James chapter 1, verses only 1 through 4, since we had to give such a lengthy introduction. James, a slave. That word should be slave. The English translators have a problem with that word because of its negative feel in our history. That is an incorrect translation. There's only one Bible translation that gets that word right, the Holman Christian Study Bible. That word in the Greek is doulos. It is not servant. It is slave. But the English translators just go, look, you know, that's a little bit of a heavy word. You know what? Heavy word or no, the concept is slave. The master has bought us. A servant does something. A slave is owned. There's a big difference. So with that bunny trail done, and, and something's really touched James' heart, because look, uh, he's now the slave of God and on the same footing, the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes is an Old Testament way of describing the Jewish people. Scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So let's pause there. That's a mouthful to consider how to handle troubles as a Christian. James is just going to dive in right away in an abrupt way and get to the heart of the problem. They're not handling their troubles correctly. And if you're not, if you as a Christian don't know how to handle trouble, it's going to make you or break you. So he's going to dive in right away. And really, there are three concepts here. One, if you're taking notes, biblical attitude in troubles. Two, biblical understanding of my troubles. And three, a biblical response to having troubles. Now, James is a little bit different. I mean, he just starts talking, you know. Uh, Dear congregation, number one, count in all joy when you're in trouble. You know, why does he do that? Well, he's not going to mess around. They're in trouble, like I said. You know, one time, I had terrible pain in my 20s in my jaw. I thought it was a tooth. And I went to the dentist, and the dentist said, that's not your tooth. Don't know what it is. So then I went to a doctor and said, I've got this terrible radiating pain right here. And the dentist said, it's not a tooth. Well, they had me going through all of these tests, They called it trigeminal neuralgia. A a nerve in my face was inflamed, and I was taking nerve pills, and nothing was happening. I was in college. I was miserable. I couldn't sleep. I I was moved to tears from the pain. And one day, somebody said, it's a tooth. Go, Go find a dentist. And somebody called an emergency hotline. 
of a dentist. And in, there in Santa Cruz, the dentist on a Sunday met me in the parking lot, and this is what he did. Walked up to me, and he, I had a glass of water because the pain would go away if I had something cold in my mouth. He saw the glass of water, and he said, root canal. That's all he said. He came to me, and he said, he looked at the water, and he goes, root canal, follow me. We went up the stairs. He didn't say a word. We went straight to the chair. He said, sit. I sat down. Boom, 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 boom. He says, open. <laughs> boom. In 30 seconds, my pain was gone. Weeks. And we said, I thought of this when I read James chapter 1. You know, it's just like, you guys are in trouble. There's no time for Thanksgiving and all of this that usual letters begin with. You've got a problem. You don't know how to handle trouble. And everybody's got trouble. You're not exempt from trouble. And if you don't know how to handle trouble, you're going down. Your whole Christian life will be ruined. Follow me. Open. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's just getting right to the problem. And so, you know, what is he saying? He's saying, number one, uh, you need a right attitude. Right from the jump, change your attitude about hardship, struggling, the paraphrase, I want you to change the way you think of struggles. When difficulties come your way, have complete joy. Well, that sounds crazy at first, but it's a command. It's in the imperative. That means it's like thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt honor mom and dad. Be joyful in your trouble. It is the same kind of command. And if you disobey this command, you're sinning. Now, I'm going to explain to you what he means by having joy, and you may be a little relieved about what that looks like, but it is a command nonetheless. Troubles and difficulties and struggles are the stuff of life. Therefore, if you're miserable when you're having a struggle, you will always be miserable because every day is a struggle. Jesus himself said, you know, every day has trouble enough of its own. And in John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Now, normally, we don't have that one on our refrigerator. (laughs) Over and over and over again, it says, you're destined for it. You live in a fallen world where the prince of the power of the air is, quote, ruling, lowercase r, because God is sovereign. There is a devil who prowls about like a roaring lion. There are other sinful people you are in relationship with, so your relationships are skewed. How about your own sinful nature that you battle night and day? In this world, you have trouble. And if you don't know how to handle trouble in a biblical way, my friend, you're going to be miserable and pathetic. It's not the absence of struggle that is our source of joy. It's the presence of God and his ability to use it for good. And so the ability to have joy transcends circumstances. My friend, there is no word for happy in the Bible. There's no word. The word translated for our idea of happy is blessed, which transcends your circumstances. You can be blessed in all kinds of predicaments. How are you doing? I'm blessed. 
You see, it doesn't mean the English word hap used to mean luck. And what's happening is good, so I'm happy. Because what's happening is pleasing to my senses. But the Christian understanding of a sense of well-being and joy transcends the momentary sensory perceptions. It's your brain telling your feelings what to do and how to think about what's going on. Christian maturity is seeing past what you can see and into the world of the eternal. Because oftentimes, my current situation has nothing to do with spiritual reality. And so I am able to, at the same time, grieve and cry and count something as loss. At the same time, down deep, because my attitude knows this is working for me and God loves me and he's going to cause this thing to work for my good, I can at the same time not enjoy it, but I can count it as joy. I can look at it and say, hey, I'm hurting right now, but... I have a sense of well-being. I'm struggling right now, but you know what? Inside, I don't know. I just have this peace. You know, it's not too foreign of an idea, is it? I mean, we've had children. I was in the labor room. It wasn't very pleasant for my wife. It was painful to have a child. But it's one of the most joyful experiences a woman can have. Why is that? Well, she certainly wasn't laughing and, and, and having a great time and saying, oh, more ice cream, please, when she's in transition. She wasn't doing things like that. In fact, I'll tell you, we were in Japan for uh, PJ's delivery, the third one. We get there, and she's in pain. She's miserable. She can count it all as joy in her heart somewhere, but at the moment, she's miserable. She wants this baby out. She's mad. <laughs> Mostly at me. <laughs> well, she says, Doctor, through a translator, I need something for the pain. And he said, Oh, nobody tell you? This is all natural hospital. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I got the look. <laughs> and you know what I said? I said, honey, I'll go. and I meant it. I, it sounds funny now. I meant it. I go to the, the, the drugstore and get her some Tylenol. <laughs> but uh, they wouldn't even give her Tylenol. I was like, I'll sneak you in some Advil. You know, anyway. You know, she had joy, folks. You can have joy. When, when I went for chemotherapy, I'm fine now. It's been eight years. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was a year and a half of quite a struggle. When they first told me that it was in my lymph nodes and I was stage two, I said, well, when can I start the chemotherapy? Well, next week isn't good. How about the week after that? I'm like, yeah, let's just wait as long as possible. Maybe I could go to stage three, you know? When I laid in that hospital bed and bore my forearm where she got it ready to receive the first dose of chemotherapy, I was over. Joyed. You know, you're going to lose all your hair. <laughs> you know, and it never did come back. Who cares? <laughs> you know you're going to get sick to your stomach for days. Put 
the needle in my arm because I am so filled with joy. That thing is going to be checked as soon as you get that meds in there. I don't care if it makes me sick and I'm throwing up all the time and I lose my hair and I don't look the same anymore. Who cares? I'm going to be alive. So in the same time as being miserable, I have joy in my heart. You know, it's like that at the gym. It's the most miserable place on earth. (laughs) But there's joy somewhere in that in a sick and twisted way. Faith allows you, my friend, to shift gears from sensory to spiritual. You know, ocean currents down deep. They're called submarine rivers. It doesn't matter what's going on on the surface. These rivers are going their own way, calmly, smoothly. They're unaffected by what's going on in the surface. And James is saying, you know what? There might be a hurricane, but down deep, down deep in your soul, God is with you. He is using this for your good. You can have peace. You can have joy, no matter what's going on in the surface, if you handle it right. Secondly, a biblical understanding of what's going on is what kind of situations is James telling us to be joyful in? Well, number one, it's serious. Um, When you face trials of many kinds is weak in the English Really, whenever you face, the Greek verb is perepipto, which means to fall into or be surrounded or be trapped. The word is also used in Luke 10 when the traveler who falls among the thieves in Jericho and is beaten there and stripped and left half dead to fall into. So he says it's something of a sudden surprise, perhaps, painful, terrifying, you're helpless. It comes upon you, you know, the letter in the mail, the phone call, uh, the, the call from your boss. He says, in those moments, when you fall into this devastating thing, he says, you know what, down deep, all joy. You're in Christ. God is in control. You may not have seen it coming, but he saw it coming, and he's with you in the hole and going to use this. And you're going to look back at this and go, wow, something good came of this. Thank you for that. Um, Many kinds of trials. The word there means multicolored. It's the same word for Joseph's coat of many colors. Here's a quote about trials. Trials are common to us all, but the way they settle on one church or another or go from one believer to another varies. We may be slandered, our human ambitions crushed. We may be ostracized. There is some thorn in our flesh, some personal problem that just won't go away. There is unrequited love when you love somebody and they don't love you back. Job and financial woes, marital and family heartache, waves of pain roll over us. Suffering is so diverse. We've got to face the reality as Christians that our faith is liable to be tested by God in such ways that can be no immunity for us as disciples from the valley of the shadow, whatever form that valley takes. The joy is possible because he is with us in the valley of shadows,
and he is using whatever that experience is for good. And so they may be sudden and painful and terrifying, and they also may be of all different shapes and sizes, but remember what it is. It's a test. Now, the word for trouble here, pyrosmos, means to be examined or evaluated. So the Lord sees trouble in the Christian life as a way to poke and prod, to open you up, to put a window in your soul for everybody to see what's cooked and what needs more cooking, you see? And so uh, there's not until really you turn a guy upside down that you see the contents of his pocket, right? So... The Lord sees trouble in your life, whatever it is, as a way to kind of stick the thermometer all the way in and see, are we mature? And nothing does it better than to turn up the heat, to slam your hand in a car door. Oh, and then we find out, what's, has that been in there? How long has that been in there? We didn't hear that in church. But we heard that when the heat gets turned up. Oh, we didn't see that behavior at the home fellowship group. But as soon as the pressure cooker went to 10, uh, now we see what's really inside. And that's why the Bible calls trouble of all sorts a test for you. Not pass fail like, oh, you loser, look at you. But to, sh- to help you to say, look what's been exposed and so as soon as you scratch the surface, you see something, you can, you can address it. You will know that you have a problem. Job's reaction, he's tested. Wow, guess what's in that heart? Pure gold, Christian maturity. Oh, shall we take the, only the good things from God and leave the bad things out? He says, oh, man, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job's wife, same pressure cooker, curse God and die. Mrs. Job, how long has that been in your heart? I bet you a million dollars that nobody, including Mr. Job, knew that Mrs. Job was just along for the ride. We don't know stuff until it blows up. And when it blows up, then you find out who's who. You find out who's who when you turn up the gas. And that's what the Lord is saying. Don't you realize you're being tested for your own good? So you'll see. Here are my strengths. And be encouraged. Wow, I really am. Or, my word, I need to repent because these issues have been laid bare. To be healed, to be repented of, to be strengthened, to be turned from. So, so, so James is saying, can't you see you can get happy about something? Because it's helping you. How else would you know what's in the deepest, darkest part of your being? Why you have a temper? Or why you're irritated so easily? Or why you're so quick to profane or be mean-spirited or critical? Just because you say, oh, I'm under pressure. Yeah, that's no excuse. That's who you are. Who you are is who you are under pressure. And so the test reveals this, my friend, is who you really are, not 
the civilized Jew, when all eyes are on you and you want people to like and respect and admire you, that's not you. God says, here comes a test to show you who you really are. This is who you turn to in times of trouble. This is what comes out of your mouth. This is, I had a friend of mine at Bible college say this to me. In light of what just has happened to me, I must now review whether or not I want to serve that God at Bible college. That's the test. A family tragedy will happen. Three will go one way. Three will go this way. Now we all know. No one knew before. Bullseye. God says, look. Why? Because he cares. He wants you to do well. He wants you to have the kind of faith that is blessed and have peace and, and you're useful to him and a joy, not this fake stuff. And so he, he allows trials to happen so that the true health of our faith is opened up and seen for what it really is so that we might um, do something about it. Last point. The Bible, biblical, rather, response is to cooperate with God. So, you know, it says, folks, you can have joy because when you fall into these kinds of troubles, any kind of trouble, you know that this testing is working perseverance for you. But James is saying this with the given that he's talking to Christians who know how to rightly handle trouble. Because my friend, some of the most wretched bitter, angry people are those who have suffered a lot. So just because you have held your breath and got through something doesn't mean anything character-wise. It doesn't mean that you are better because you have suffered. Suffering in itself will do nothing for the Christian. Suffering born rightly, embraced, prayed over, where you look and say, my word, look at this. Lord, I repent of that. Uh, draw me closer, deepen my walk with you. Help me to be more kind and self-controlled. Where you repent and you reach out to others and you confess your sins, you're growing. You're being honest with what God has shown you through the test. And so joy is really linked to the benefits of the trial when we deal with them in biblical ways. So we look what these troubles can produce for us. He says, Christian fortitude, patience, toughness, the ability to keep going when it's rough. He says, look, if you, if you keep walking through the, these troubles in the right way, praying through them, drawing close to God, letting him deepen your character through them, witnessing, use it as a witness for the Lord, you will become strong. And mature, the kind of person you've been praying to become, whole and healthy, wise, useful to God, at peace and content, and a person that people admire and want to follow. That's the prayer that you've been praying. And so he brings the trouble, and you say, make the trouble go away, because the trouble's the bad thing. And he says, no, I'm answering your prayer. The way I'm going to make you into the image of Christ is for you to remain under the trouble. Now, I have a three-rule policy with trouble. Paul the Apostle 
asked three times for the thorn to be removed, and it was not. And so he accepted and said, boy, I'm learning a lot from being under this problem. It's produced in him all sorts of things. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Check it out. Jesus himself, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. And sometimes he does. But if you ask three times like Jesus did and like Paul did, and you know what I mean, not technically three times, but you've asked and you prayed through and you've sought counsel, and this thing is stuck on you. The word perseverance means to remain under. Two words coming together, it means to stay under it until it does its job. And what it's doing is building you up, exposing things, drawing you closer. I was at the gym the other day, and I saw somebody who actually paid somebody to torture them, called a trainer. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy is standing next to him. And he's holding one of those 45-pounders, the round ones. It looks like a steering wheel, only it's heavy. (laughs) And he's got it, and he's doing this with it. And it's over his head, and he has to do that, right? And the trainer's counting. One, two, (laughs) you know, he's just torturing the guy. And the guy, you hear him grunting, and he's going like this. and, And I hear the guy just the other day. Stay under it, man. Hupomene in the Greek. Stay under it. God, what are you telling me? What are you teaching me? What are you showing me? Have your way. And when he's done with that weight, he stands up and he's, he's looking good. He's stronger now. Because he stayed under a God-designated trouble. When they're not God-designated, he'll lift them. But if you're praying and praying and praying, doing everything you know to walk the walk, and it's still sitting on you, he's saying, my child, I know how much to give you without breaking you. This is for my glory and the answer to your prayer. Stay under it. And that means to cooperate that are holding my breath and pushing it away and praying for it to go away to say, God, I embrace this. I'm not happy about it. I'm not enjoying it, obviously. But Father, have your way in this. Train me. Use me. Help me to stay under it. And he will. and He'll do great things for you. You'll become what the goal of this text is. Teleos. His goal for you in training you through trouble is maturity. The word means perfection or wholeness. So he's saying for you to be that perfectly, well, I've got a list here, a mature Christian, devoted love for God without rival loves, complete obedience to him in every way, a love for other people above yourself, Character qualities consistent with Jesus. Consistent, intimate prayer with the Father. Compassion for the lost and needy. Godly wisdom for every day. Steadfastness through tough times. Faithful in giving. Overcoming temptation. 
truthful, honest, helpful, kind, hospitable, gracious, encouraging, humble, friendly, forgiving, holy. That's just one list. Teleos means that. Not sinless perfection, but a person who is well-rounded, balanced, filled with love and graciousness. He says, that's my goal, and one of the ways to get you there is to use the troubles in your daily fallen life and in your own heart to have you cooperate with me in that. We will reach this place where you will be more in line with the image of your Lord and Savior, which, by the way, Romans chapter 8 says you've been destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That means God's overarching theme over your life, if you want to know what God's will for you is, one of them is this, to make you, to use everything in your life to make you more like Jesus. That means you'll love like Jesus, you'll speak like Jesus spoke, you'll think thoughts like Jesus thought, you pray like him, you love like him, you're patient as Christ, you're as gracious as Christ. That's his goal. That's your destiny. So instead of fighting and thinking, what have I done wrong? I'm suffering. I got troubles. This is a bad thing. Now you start to say, you know what? Maybe I can have a little joy here because this is pressure that is going to refine me and help me in eternal, wonderful, godly ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and for your goodness and that we do have a whole nother take on how to handle trouble. And though we hate that word, we love what you can do through it, Lord. And so, Father, we don't pray for you to remove all the trouble from our lives. Necessarily, we pray that in the trouble of our lives, that we would recognize your presence and embrace every opportunity to grow closer to you and become the kind of man and woman that you've created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. A favorite scripture of many Christians, Romans 8, 28, where God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love God and called according to his purpose. I told you this before, I was driving by uh, 19th Avenue in San Francisco and I looked up on the hill and I, uh, just, just recently, I saw the hospital where I had my bone marrow transplant, where I struggled a year and a half. At one point, they said, if we can't stop this, you've got a year to live. I suffered on that hill. I was in the hospital for two months. I looked at that hospital with fond memories in my heart. How is that possible? Because God did so many wonderful things through it. Seven months after that stay and being pronounced cured, we started this church that had prepared me to be able to, to empathize with people who suffer and, and to, to be on my own deathbed as a pastor. It, it, so many wonderful things. And one time I led a guy to the Lord in the bed next to me. 
And I felt like the Lord said, Ross, do you see why I had to bring you up here? One of the reasons this is this moment, he escapes hell because you allowed me to use this in your life. People heard the gospel. I was strengthened. I was ready for anything that anybody could throw at me because of something that was so terrible, or so I thought. My friend, something terrible got you right now? Come on. God's using it. Stay under it as long as God wants you to. Soon he'll lift that thing off of you and you'll be prepared. You will be blessed and others around you as well. Just handle it in the right way. Let's pray together, bow our heads, close our eyes. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know the Lord. You'd like to know this God who can use all your troubles for good. If you don't come to know him in this life, nothing really matters. And this sermon really wasn't going to be helpful to you. You have to come and commit your life to Christ. If you're here and you'd like to become a Christian today and just say, include me in the closing prayer, slip your hand up nice and high, and we'll say the sinner's prayer together. Amen. A few hands. Anybody else like to uh, join these few hands and give your heart to the Lord? We're going to say the sinner's prayer. Amen. Another hand. All right, let's pray together. Repeat after me, dear Heavenly Father, Father, I'm a sinner. sinner. I have nothing without you. I I open my heart to you. you. Save me. me. Wash me from my sins. Fill me with life. Help me to love you and walk with you all the days of my life. I give you my life. In Christ's name, amen. Father, now we just commit the rest of us to your care. Help us reach out to these new believers in our midst and help us always, Lord, to get our eyes on the one who's walking with us under that which we're called to stay under. And we have a friend in the fire with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage our hearts today, Lord. So we take a new attitude toward the things that we're going through. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 